0: Our Father, we're so thankful that we're able to come before the throne of grace as the scripture tells us boldly with confidence, not arrogance, but with humility, uh, beseeching God on behalf of these needs. Because, Father, we know that your will is to do what is right and good. Your desire is to draw each person to yourself. And so, Lord, we come with humble hearts asking you, Lord, to be our teacher this morning that your Holy Spirit, who we know is in the midst of us right now, moving according to his great plan, will will touch our lives through the word of God and it will become vital, uh, a flame that will burn within our souls and will move us, Lord, to obedience and to faithfulness. And Father, I pray that our Sunday school this morning will be blessed of you in each and every class. And Father, I do pray for Paul as he ministers this morning that you will give him strength of mind and body and spirit, that you'll take away weariness and replace it with divine energy and that he'll have the word of the Lord to share. And we pray for Dale, that you will touch him, Father, that uh, the doctors will do whatever they need to do, but Father, that your healing hand will be upon him and that you'll restore him quickly to full health. We're so grateful, Lord. that. You are our divine resource. You are the one we can come to with every need. And as we look at this passage this morning, I pray that you'll reinforce that truth to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the 21st chapter of the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 21, I would like to read beginning with verse 4. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Of course, reference to the manna. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a, pers- if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, we looked at this uh, passage last week in some detail. And we, we note, I think, from this, first of all, that the bronze serpent had a purpose in being a touchstone of faith. The, the purpose of raising up this serpent was so that the people would have something tangible to look at to demonstrate faith in the intangible word of God. And so they did. And those who looked, the scripture tells us, lived. But we find that there is a second major function. It wasn't just to save people from dying as a result of these serpent bites. It had an even greater purpose. And that greater purpose, as we read in the third chapter of John, was to prefigure the cross of Christ. In the 14th verse of John 3, we read, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And of course, as as we've heard in many sermons and studied on our own, certainly uh, to to die on a cross is one of the most heinous ways to perish. And for Christ to be lifted up was was not a glorifying thing in, in the sense of people looking upon Him. In fact, as you know, they derided Him as He hung there on the cross. Uh, save yourself, many would say. And it was an awful thing to hang on the cross. And it it was a vis- it was an awful vision for especially those who, who loved Christ. But the serpent was not a nice thing either. I mean, how many of us long to look at a serpent? Now I'm not gonna ask you if any of you are reptilian lovers, but <laughs> the natural human reaction, the natural human reaction is to be repulsed by a snake. It doesn't even matter if it's if it's not venomous, it, it's just the natural human reaction. And I think part of that is because of the whole long-term comparison between the serpent, the physical serpent, and the serpent, Satan, and, and the event, of course, which occurred in the Garden of Eden, and the fact that he is referred to as that great serpent, Satan, and, and the serpent was not a good thing to look at. It was, it was a symbol of evil, and, and I don't know, Steve Zoffy is here this morning, but he mentioned after class, last time that, you know, Christ became for us sin. In a way, he became as the serpent in that he bore all the sin of the world and it was to look on an awful thing. So so awful was it that God turned his back upon his own son? We we don't understand. Can't comprehend all of that because Jesus was the divine one. Now, how could one divine being turn his back on the other divine being? We don't understand all of that, but but we understand that there is this prefiguring in the bronze serpent of what would happen to Christ and what he would do for us. And as they looked upon the bronze serpent, they were delivered. They were saved, as it were. It, it, It not only was a physical salvation, but it represented a faith in God, which reflected a spiritual relationship, too. And as we look at Christ, as it were, that, that, that's a spiritual thing. We, we view Him as our Savior and as our Deliverer. And so the bronze serpent, the cross of Christ, have these parallels one to the other. And it's no accident. No accident whatsoever. It's not like Christ came and said, well, let's see now, by what means can I be similar to the serpent? Not at all. God had this great plan in motion. And that's why it's so significant to us to understand what's between Genesis and Malachi for us to really get a hold on what the New Testament's all about. Now, we noted last week, and I'll read that passage again from 2 Kings, that the Israelites preserved that bronze serpent. You know, many had looked and had lived, and and so, you know, God had ordered that um, the tablets that were carved on the top of Mount Sinai be saved inside the ark and that Aaron's rod that budded be saved. And so even though God didn't say it, they must have decided, well, we're going to also preserve the bronze serpent. And Moses allowed that. Now, he's never, you know, the scripture never says Moses did a bad thing in allowing it to be preserved, but it was preserved. And it was preserved for generation after generation after generation. And it, it was transformed from a touchstone of faith into a fetish, into something, a relic, if you will, that became an object of worship. So I'd like to read that passage again from Second Kings chapter 18. Now it came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. And was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. And he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him, among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord, and he did not depart from following him. But he kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Hezekiah was in a tight spot. His back was against the wall. The little country of Judah was being inundated by the sea of the mighty Assyrian Empire. It was the only little particle in that whole Near Eastern realm which included Egypt all the way over to the Persian Gulf, that whole fertile crescent area, the whole thing had been overwhelmed by the mighty Assyrian empire with the exception of this one little knot of land called Judah. If we read that passage a little further, we discover that, well, in the next verse, that he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. And, and it wasn't because Hezekiah was a rebellious man. It was because Assyria was an evil empire. Many have compared the Assyrian army to the Nazi empire uh, of, this, of this day uh, in terms of the evil things they did. And, and if, you know, if, we, if, it, if it weren't for the fact that uh, it would not some stomachs, we could talk about how the Assyrians dealt with the people that they conquered. But Hezekiah wanted, he, he knew that the only way that his little kingdom could survive against this mighty power was by trusting in God. You know, as I think, thought about this, uh, even this morning, you think of this, this mighty Assyrian empire whose tentacles reached all over the Near East and whose great army could conquer anybody. And there was just this little tiny country standing for God. And that's basically what we are as the church, a little tiny country standing in the midst of, of a world that is locked in sin, where the evil one has his way in the hearts of most people today in the world. And true believers are in a tiny, tiny minority. And this army is marching against us, against the church and us individually, as it was, as the Assyrians were against Hezekiah's army. And he knew that the only way that his kingdom was going to survive was if God's blessing was upon them. Because he knew, of course, from his own study of Scripture. By the way, there is a passage in Deuteronomy that tells us that every king was to hand copy the Word of God for himself. Now That's one way to make sure you cover it all. Hand copy every verse that was, of course, available to them, and 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 they could not say, "Well, I didn't know what the Bible said." My wife has hand copied the entire Bible as part of her own study. What five years or something like that it uh, took her. So what he did was to purge the country. He moved through the land, and he it, we're, we're told in the passage that he he. he tore down the high places, which means he went to the hilltops and chopped down the groves that were up there for the worship of Baal and the Asherah, the fertility symbols and all this stuff were destroyed. And then also we're told he destroyed the bronze serpent, Nehushtan. He destroyed it because people were burning incense to it. They were worshiping this thing, this, this relic. They were treating it as if it had some kind of divinity within it. That there was power there by just touching it or looking at it or or having it in in their possession. Now, at the end of class, uh, last week, I emphasized the fact that God brings true revival to his people only when we are serious in our desire to know him and to live in obedience to him. We, we keep hearing these stories about, well, you know, this person lives a life that is not very godly, but we don't know if they really knew the Lord or not. Well, as I read scripture, yeah, it's possible for someone to, quote, backslide and to fall away from the Lord for a period of time. But if someone lives a lifestyle that is evil, the chances of them ever having known the Lord are, to, in my opinion, negative, you know, less than zero. They may have gone through some kind of a experience that they claimed was salvation, or they may have made some kind of a profession, but that doesn't mean anything. It's a transaction within the heart. We're told that we become new babes in Christ. We, we, we're born into the family of God, and, and whereby our, our nature is changed. Doesn't mean we're sinless, but at least our goal is to live right. We may keep falling along the way and running on this rabbit tail trail and that rabbit trail, but if our lifestyle reflects. Uh, evil. The scripture is, I think, quite clear. And so our desire should be to live obediently to the Lord and to know him. And it's only when we're serious about this that we move away from the, the trappings of this life, which occupies so much of our time, that God will move in mighty revival. And anything that detracts from our focus upon him will keep revival away. And that's what Nehushtan was doing amongst other things. But you, you see, Nehushtan could be viewed as okay because it was a mighty symbol that God had ordered made and God had used to touch lives. And so it could be argued, well, it was okay, whereas obviously this, this fertility symbol on top of the hill is, is from the evil one, but, but this is from God. It, it's so easy to rationalize. You and I are, I'm assuming you, but at least I know that in my case, I can rationalize things pretty easily if I let myself. And this is what God is dealing with here. Now, as you know, in the history of the church, there's developed in various denominations, in various time periods, uh, a belief in, in relics, in worshiping, in effect, people, even though many times they will say, oh, we're not really worshiping this person, we're just being reminded of this person. Well, you take a primitive mind, uneducated mind who comes right out of paganism, they don't know the difference, uh, this is for sure. And I read from Revelation chapter 22 where the angel who appeared to John and John wanted to fall down and worship him, the angel said, don't do that worship God. You don't worship angels. You don't worship anything. In fact, angel worship was a a cult of the early church that impacted the early church. And and the scripture tells us that man has been made lower than angels. So what right have we ever to put a person on a pedestal? I don't care how good they are or how much they have been used by God to fulfill God's plan. Now as you may have noted, there is a plan afoot right now. There's tremendous pressure on the Pope to elevate mary to co-redemptress to make her co-equal with jesus christ which would of course change the trinity to a quadernity or something like that i don't know exactly how it would work but is that of god well if the bible is the word of god i think the answer is obviously no but, but this is what happens when rationalization comes along and you know a little bit here a little bit there. the, The church began its course of paganization in the very late 4th century and into the 5th century when Theodosius the Great, the emperor of the empire in 381, proclaimed Christianity to be the official religion of the Roman empire. That is when the paganization began because you couldn't be a good citizen within the Roman empire outside of the church after that. Now, you could, from the time of Constantine up to Theodosius, because Constantine didn't make that order. He simply said, I'm a Christian, therefore it's good for you all to be Christians. But he didn't order people to become Christians. But as soon as Theodosius passed that uh, edict, then you had to be a Christian. Well, it's kind of like standing on a hillside and waving a cross over a city and saying, all right, you're all Christians now. Well, you know, it, it doesn't work that way. And so obviously what you're doing is you're pulling into the church vast numbers of pagans. Well, how do you keep them? Well, you do in the church what you need to do to make them want to stay. You start putting up little images here, little images there, and and paganizing the whole program. And that, of course, is what happened to the church. The scripture makes it quite clear that we're to bow to God alone. We bow to no human being. We bow to no one else because no one is worthy of worship except God alone. I don't care if they have led mighty revivals or are are the head of the greatest denomination of so-called Christianity in the world. They are not worthy of worship or being bowed to. They're just human flesh. And the scripture tells us that in our flesh dwells no good thing, period. The same is true of objects. And the very last thing I mentioned in class on uh, last Sunday was that you well know that the church, Catholic and Orthodox churches are shot full of relics. Relic collecting came on 1,500 years ago, and they began collecting relics within the church. And every church that's worthy of its name has a relic. They have a bone of St. John the Baptist, or they have a lock of hair of, of St. Paul, or, or whatever they have. It's in a little, you know, little place in the church, and it's, it's a great place to be venerated. Veneration is very, very important to these people. And, and it misses the mark entirely. Because we're to venerate none but God, no object. Because Scripture tells us that all of this is going to burn with a fervent heat. Even if the Ark of the Covenant still exists on this planet, it will burn with a fervent heat. Nehushtan was destroyed. The cross of Jesus disappeared a long time ago. In fact, probably other people, now some people would just think this is total heresy, there were probably other people who crucified on the same cross that Jesus was. Did you ever think about that? And the nails that nailed him to the cross were probably pulled out. I mean, they didn't have Grossman's, or I guess they don't have Grossman's around here. Meeks to go down to and just buy a keg of nails. He had lots of nails. You just pull out. You reuse the nail. You don't wipe it off a little bit. And, and you know, his, those nails were probably used again. Those nails were not sacred. That cross was not sacred. What happened on the cross was sacred. But the wood was not sacred. We have in, in English literature the pursuit of the Holy Grail. There was nothing holy about that little cup that Jesus drank out of in itself. The inauguration of the Last Supper was divine and holy. But, but if we start creating uh, things and giving them holiness, then, then you have what has developed in the church known as transubstantiation. And that's where the priest does his little hocus pocus and, and, the, and the wine actually becomes the blood of Christ. And the bread actually becomes the body of Christ. And that detracts from truth. It takes our worship and spreads it out instead of focusing it on God in His person. Now, you and I probably do not bow to any church leader. Probably never been tempted to. You and I probably do not venerate any religious object. You don't have some little religious item up in your house that you kind of do a little a dance before, you know, some kind of, level. you probably don't do that. But whatever is the center of our affections is what we worship. Scripture says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And every once in a while I think that's a scary verse. Because sometimes in my mind I'm not thinking real good things. And whatever is that center, what, what do we long for most? What is it that we just live for every day? Do we live at work so we can go home and vegetate in front of the TV set and watch that, those favorite programs? Is that what we live for all day and, and it's the only reason we can make it through the day is so we can sit down and relax and, and watch this program or a bunch of programs? Or, or is, do we live all week so we can go out and boat and boat and boat and that's the only thing we want to do all week long or you know, watch sports, participate in sports, party? You know, I've worked in many, as as probably most of you do now, worked in many situations where the bulk of people I worked with were pagan people, and, and that's all they could talk about was going out and getting drunk on the weekend and partying. And that's what they lived for all week. And on Monday, of course, they paid for it, but by Friday they'd forgotten, and they did it all over again. That is what they worship. What we long for most is what we worship. It's the center of our affections. What we need to do, of course, is to get rid of that nehushtan if it's there. We need to destroy it. Even, you know, a person can actually make something they're doing for the church to be their real object of worship. They're not really doing it for God. They'll say they will, but they're doing it because they get lots of strokes. You know, you do such a good job. You're such a wonderful person. And pretty soon you get to believe that. I I think it's okay to look forward to doing things. I do. You know, if vacation's coming up, I look forward to it. You know, if if there's a particular thing I want to watch on television and it's coming up, I look forward to it. But it can't rival or displace our central focus on God. It's got to be expendable. You you probably all remember that story that was written in World War II. They were expendable. Talking about PT service over in the South Pacific, Uh, little boats that would go out there to interfere with the Japanese, but they were expendable. You know, if they were lost, well, that's just the way it was. And, of course, we know about PT 109 and, and other things. Expendability. You and I are expendable. Know that? If God so chooses to take us now because in some way advances his kingdom, you know, we can't say, oh, but God, I'm so needful for your purpose here. No. Hezekiah will, will make a foolish prayer later in his life. This godly man will one day say, oh, God, you know, the prophet comes and says, it's time to die, Hezekiah. He says, I don't want to die. And God says, oh, I'll give you 15 more years. He did. And in that 15 years, a vicious and awful man was born to him. The most evil king in the history of Israel was born to Hezekiah during that 15 years. If he had died... That particularly is this true when it's time for God's people to be assembled together. When God has ordained a time and a day to worship together and we regularly choose to be elsewhere, we have voted with our feet. We have said what's important to us. That's true if God gives us opportunities to minister also. He, he makes it quite clear that we're to minister to this person, but we have decided there's something else we need to do. We're we voting. We are, in fact, saying to God, what you want's not really important to me. What's really important is this, and that's my in effect. Now, what the scripture tells us is that true believers, for true believers, everything we do is to be an act of worship and obedience to God. Now, if that were true every day of our lives, all day long, we wouldn't sin, would we? Scripture says in Colossians 1.17, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Now, if we take that verse to heart and live that verse, how often will we grumble and gripe and complain? How can we grumble, gripe, and complain if we're giving God the Father thanks through Jesus Christ the Son? How how can we do that? Whatever we do in word or deed, we're to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That kind of puts sin in its place, doesn't it? It's hard to sin in the name of the Lord Jesus. Even though there are people who do it. In the name of God, I murder you because you don't believe what I believe. But that isn't, of course, done in, in the name of the Lord, in, in fact. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, it may be printed wrong in your outline, it's chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, I'd like to read verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, aliens and strangers? To the world is what he's saying here. To abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation, and the day when Christ returns. Keep our behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles. For us, that means the entire world in which we live. Because as the church, we are Israel. Now, we're not Jews by blood, but we are spiritual Israel. And that makes all the people who are not a part of the church Gentiles. Even the Jews are Gentiles in that sense of the term. And so we are to live in such a way that whatever they accuse us of will be proven to be false. And they will, in the end, now in the day of visitation, for many who, who won't believe, that will mean that they will do it not out of willingness, but out of duress when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But they will have to say, yes, this person reflected the truth of Christ in his life and her life. That's what we are to do. And as we strive to truly worship God, not just in form, but in substance, and there is a huge difference, as you well know. We live in a world where it is said, If you read Barrett's book on the the church today, you'll discover that there are about 1.6 billion people in the world today who claim to be Christian. That's Christendom. That means everybody who is a part of any sect or cult that has any Christian connections, there's 1.6 billion of them in the world today. Well, I think that you'll find that most of that 1.6 worship God in form only but not in substance. There's no reality to their worship because it's not a heart thing. Because if it's a heart thing, it will be in obedience to the Word of God. It will be so that God will change the lives and the life will not be lived for, well, that's the way I think it ought to be. But that's, that's why the church has gone so far astray today. It's people saying, well, this is what it says, but it can't really mean that. You know, God couldn't really be asking me to do that. I'm crucified with Christ. Oh, no, 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 no. The heart changed by God is willing to submit to the Word of God. We may not always do it very well. Sometimes we'll have those little hard knots, you know, which will for the moment rebel against God. But the basic uh, course of our life is to walk in obedience to Him. And that's where the so-called proof of the pudding is. You know, people can say until they're blue in the face, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. But if their lives don't support it, It's just a bunch of hot air. As God is worshipped in substance, He will pour out His Spirit on His people. He'll pour out His Spirit in mighty revival. How great a work will God really do? Well, let's look at the case of Hezekiah again. Hezekiah led Israel in humble repentance before God. They cleaned up their act, as it were, in the sense that they destroyed the high places, they destroyed everything that would rival the worship with God. Okay, So what would God do in response? He did one of the greatest miracles in the history of Israel on behalf of the people because of their obedience and the sincerity of their worship and commitment to him. The scripture we read this morning says Hezekiah clung to the Lord. I mean, he just stuck to God like glue. And he led his people in unprecedented faith and trust in the Lord. It's particularly unprecedented compared to what we've been reading about for 40 years in the wilderness here. You know, I heard several of you snickering as I was reading that passage in Numbers again. And, you know, why did you lead us up out of Egypt? You know, I mean, how many times did they you know, like I mentioned once before, they might as well just have recorded it and just said, here, Moses, play the tape again. Because this is what they were doing. What did God do in response? He saved Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if you can get the picture. Judea is this teeny little country, this mighty Assyrian army. I mean, it's sort of like the blitz of World War II, you know, the panzers moving in. The Assyrian army moved in, and they were cutting off city after city, and they were marching inexorably towards Jerusalem. Now, if you haven't been to the Holy Land, you don't really know how small Jerusalem is. It's a dinky place. Now, modern Jerusalem, of course, is scattered all around the walled city of Jerusalem. But we're talking about the walled city. It's not a very big place. It will go into Redding several times. And here this army is coming. And one of the things the king of, of the Assyrians, Sennacherib, will say that if you can put 2,000 men on horses, I'll give you the 2,000 horses. I mean, it was a it was a jab, jab. You haven't even got 2,000 warriors. I've captured every god along the way and put him in, in a cage and sent him back to my land and I'm going to do that to your Yahweh too made a mistake of writing that down and sending it to Hezekiah. So Hezekiah took the letter into the temple and spread it out there, unrolled the scroll, and he said, God, what do you think of this man's letter? Well, God didn't have a very high opinion of it, as you may imagine. And what God did was to wipe out the entire Assyrian army without a single shot being fired. Isaiah had come to Hezekiah at the word of the Lord, and he said, Hezekiah, don't worry, not a single arrow will fly over the wall of Jerusalem. Not a single arrow. There were 185,000, I mean, the Assyrian army probably had within its ranks three to four times the population of the entire city of Jerusalem, men, women, and children. Now, it's often said that a city can withstand a siege if it has enough water and enough food. A city can withstand the siege if they have at least one warrior to every eight or ten outside the wall. Well, I mean inside the walls of Jerusalem, there probably wasn't one warrior for every 20 or 30 Assyrian soldiers. So it was a foregone conclusion as far as Sennacherib was concerned. But the angel of the Lord wiped out that entire army in one night. He just simply declared them dead. He didn't have to do a thing to them. He didn't have to do what some have said, well, you know, the bubonic plague came in or mice came in and ate the bowstrings of their bows so they couldn't shoot them. I mean, there are liberals out there who want to think up of anything they can to, to make God non-miraculous. God simply said, you guys are all dead. That's all. They didn't have to die of anything. Just God extracted their spirits from their bodies, and that kind of took care of the whole thing. 185,000 corpses lying around out there. He didn't kill the king or his, his chief officer. Somebody had to go back and, and uh, basically report that things hadn't gone so well in this campaign. Can you imagine the shock effect as the news of this reverberated through the Near East? I mean, the mighty empire of Assyria, the entire army was wiped out. I mean, they're going to have to go back and recruit another whole army, which wasn't so easy to do in those days. Who could they credit this to? Because no battle was fought. Who could they credit this to except the God of Judah? God of Judah, that teeny little country was greater than all the gods of Assyria. That was obvious. And and you and I,
1: because it's not recorded in Scripture, have no idea how many lives God touched as a result of that great. How many lives of of people who weren't even Jews were changed when they heard that and they they understood the might of the the God of Judah. I mean, all through history, He was demonstrating His might and His power. And that is the purpose of revival. Why does God send revival? So we can just go around having this glow feel good about ourselves, you know, we've done something right and you know God's happy with us. No, he does it to glorify himself in the church and in the world. Both in the church and in the world. Because as he does so, the church suddenly
0: becomes relevant again. Suddenly the church has true meaning in this world. The church tends to lose its meaning as it becomes more and more like the world. So why should I bother going?
1: My wife and I have talked about this many times. Why should we go to some of these liberal churches where you go there and you don't hear the word of God, you don't even hear the name of Jesus mentioned, and what's the point? What's the point?
0: You might as well sit in front of the TV or go to the lake or do something else. There, there's no reason. It's just another social gathering.
1: Maybe if that's important, that's fine, but it means nothing eternally. God brought the fiery serpents into the Israelite camp so that they would become painfully aware of the fact... That their purpose was to serve God and to carry out be the vehicle by which He carry out the plan of salvation. They were not here to serve themselves and pursue their own pleasures. This is important for us to remember today because you and I well know that we live in a pleasure addicted age. Addicted to pleasure. Something's got to be stimulated every minute, otherwise they're to think the devil thinks a serious thought. You and I as Christians can be seduced into thinking and acting like the world. And that's what's happening. And that's what's happened to so much of the church. It simply reflects the characteristics of the world. And that's why divorce has crept into the church in an unprecedented way. It's why illicit sex has become part of the church in a way that is absolutely horrendous. And things are happening so the church doesn't stand out like it did at one time. As a bastion of faith and obedience to God and demonstrating that by doing what the scripture says, the reality of Christ can be seen and life of the king. You probably remember the stories of the Great Awakening. When the Great Awakening hit this country, in those towns where the Great Awakening uh, struck with mighty force, they had to shut down the taverns because nobody wanted to drink. They didn't need to. And, you know, society becomes changed as people become changed. And, and to me, this is the only thing that's going to change our society as people become changed. We can war against all these evils we see in our society. We, we should. But the only way it's ever going to really stop is as the hearts of the people are changed. That will dry up the sources of all this violence. Where, where people who are living evil lives are held in high esteem and on pictures in the fronts of magazines. The world directly affects the church, but people cannot go to church unless they are entertained. The focus of the worship service should be the Word of God. It should be prayer, praise, and if these are not the foci of our worship service, it's not worship. It's just another program we're going through, it's just another meeting we're going often, that the Word of God will be the central focus of God's worship service. That's got to be the central focus. This has got to be the heart, and prayer has got to be an essential part of what we do as we gather together. Well, I think that rather than launching into the next passage here, we'll stop at that point because we're going to be moving along with Israel here on a little more positive note as they move in the conquest of the land.